This week, Deacon Charlie sits down with John Popola, father, filmmaker, and CEO of Emergent Order, a studio dedicated to heroic storytelling that embodies classical virtues. This week's episode is part one of their conversation, where they discuss John's current fatherhood project called Dad Saves America. Dad really is the definitive player in a family for whether or not the kids are going to be practitioners of their faith. I think this has been studied multiple times, and it is as robust as the fact that the biological father being in the home is a highly determinant variable in whether or not your kids, especially your boys, are going to turn out okay. So dad matters in a really important way. John covers his journey from Spike TV, Nickelodeon, and MTV to starting his own studio and how becoming a father immediately changed him. He and Deacon delve into conversations on the importance of fatherhood and how he's trying to arm fathers with the tools they need to succeed. This is Living the Call. John Popola, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you, man. What brings you to L.A.? So I'm I'm meeting with a couple different folks. I'm, nice. I'm meeting... Uh, I already had a meeting with um, a screenwriter that I've known a long time, actually. He's an economist, and I have a TV show idea, which, of course, involves shooting for the moon because these things are sub-1% likelihood of success But projects. they're fun to talk about, though, aren't they? I mean, <laughs> yes, they always are. Yes, always yes. This is the high-risk, high-reward part of the activities portfolio. Is it also economy-driven or based? It is. So it's... Um, it's about it's about basically the way the finance system works, mm-hmm. and it's me- meant to be a scripted drama. So there's an economist named uh, Glenn Whitman that I um I've known for a long time, and we've been talking about this project. So uh, we're we're starting to collaborate on it a little bit. We'll see what happens. There's been I mean, like I think about like movies that have kind of sort of busted the mem- the membrane a little bit that had financial backs, you know, backgrounds or whatever. They've been, I mean, there's been some really successful movies. Right? I mean, more recently, The Big Short, Wall Street, some of these different things. Like, it is an interesting subject matter, especially the ones that let you kind of delve a little deeper and find out what's really happening. At least that's what I found. You know, it's one of these things where if you're oriented towards a free market mindset like I am, the challenge you face is that a lot of what constitutes drama is... um how shall I put this? It sort of works in opposition with understanding the way some of these things actually work. Because in a lot of cases, uh, you know, take 2008 financial crisis, for sure. example. It's an easy, dramatic human story to focus on greed and fraud and bankers taking advantage of people. That's a, you know, good guy, bad guy story. Mm. It's a lot harder to tell the story of how the system and the incentives that were in place because of things like the Fed printing too much money and various regulations made it so that you as a banker who is a human being that has a family and is trying to do a good job um, are in a position to to make products for people that they... Financial instruments. That they want. Yeah. And that if they don't get from you, they'll get from someone else. Sure. That you might even feel like this is not a great, you shouldn't buy this house. This house is too expensive for you. And have that person say, well, I'm just going to go Ooh. down the street then. And your manager saying, why aren't you doing these loans? Everybody's doing them. There's never been a problem with a na- nationwide housing mm-hmm. problem. Like, what are you worried about? And I have friends, a friend of mine wrote a book called Waffle Street. He was um, one of those guys who could feel that, the financial system was in overdrive and that the products he was selling 
probably had some fundamental problems, but he, he said he literally had people say, well, look, if you can't make this kind of return for me, a buddy of mine has this investor guy named Bernie Madoff that's earning him like 10% a year. I'll just go, I'll just go there. Wow. So, you know, but that's a harder story to tell at the human level, right? Well, I was going to say, most people wouldn't even tackle the story from the perspective of the kind of the, the antagonist, I guess, in that case, the, the the financial, the person with the financial stake in the game. It's Usually it's approached by like the every man or like how corrupt the system is against the world and kind of like to lend that human layer over it and also to, to approach some of the complexity in the system, right? That's one of the things I liked about, I forget who directed the big short. I don't know if you remember. because Adam McKay. Thank you. That's one of the things I liked most about his work was like uh, these like creative conceits where he would like have, I don't know who the hell it was, like Lady Gaga or something talking about some financial instrument in sort of regular day terms. And it, and it did kind of make it real. But just approaching it from the standpoint of the kind of human dimension of these things, that's something that, I, I mean, sounds interesting just hearing you describe it. Not, not something that I would have expected. It, it's hard. It's hard because... <sighs> The world is super complicated. Yeah. In fact, it's complex. Like, and I think those are actually two different things. So, you know, we, I was coming in, you were showing me the, this awesome classic car you've got mm -hmm. in the driveway. Cars are complicated machines, but they are a machine. They're designed by a mind, but like society systems, like the economy, they're not just complicated. They're not engineering problems. They're complex. They, they have are. all these living things called humans that have complex motivations all intersecting in a million different ways. So it ends up being really hard to tell a story that doesn't end up fundamentally being a lie. Yeah. Cause you've got to pick a path through this cloud of complexity and you're, and the things you're not showing that don't end up in the script and end, or, or they are in the script, but they're in the cutting room floor because nobody understood it. For sure. That, that, puts you in kind of a powerful and dangerous position as a storyteller when it's trying to tackle I bet. complex subjects. One of the things, just kind of double click on that complexity. One of the things that I always wonder about the financial, and you're much more equipped in this conversation than I am because I'm not like a economy guy. Okay. I mean, I know enough about certain things to sort of know who people are, but not enough to know what they said or what these things mean. But one of the things that always like um, strikes me is to that complexity the layers of financial instruments and how people gain across transactions, irrespective of whether or not those transactions are net positive or net neutral or net negative for the different constituents that are there, right? So it's like, I make money in a lot of cases, not everybody I know, but like a hedge fund person, right? Makes money kind of whether people win or lose. They're, they're kind of okay. And I wonder as it relates to free markets, because I know you're a free market guy, as am I, I would say, um, is there a limit to the free market in terms of like, what are the, what are the, what are the edges of this? What are the borders of it? Where it's like, you could say, Hey, listen, you know, this is an instrument. You might not like it. Some people like it. The Bernie Madoff example you made, right? It's like, I'm not going to sell it to you, but if somebody else does and they claim it works and you're happy as a customer, God bless you. Right. Is there, is there a limit to that? Well, how do you see it? That's a good question. I think that there's two answers. So one answer is, that there has to be a, a moral framework that comes before markets. Mm -hmm. um, a good friend of mine, I did this documentary with uh, and about him, Arthur Brooks. It's yeah. a theme in, in the movie and it's a theme of his work is that morals come before markets. But what he means by that is something very specific. What he means is that, you know, if you just think of transacting with people, 
which is all we talk about. Like, what isn't, what is economic activity? It's like, it's people making deals with each other. I'm going to go to the grocery store. I'm going to make you a deal money for groceries, or I'm going to sign with an agent to represent me. I'm going to do a transaction with them. Um, there are some transactions that we don't allow. Right. Right. So, uh, we don't want to have transactions with people, human trafficking. Now, I wouldn't say human trafficking or slavery or anything that, that essentially coerces another human being is quote unquote, a free market transaction. It's a market transaction that there's obviously been markets for slaves. There still is, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So I think in that sense, you have to have moral frameworks that bind your decisions, whether they're in the financial or in the transactional world or just in any other world as a human being. Then I think the bigger question, the one that a lot of our politics will tend to get tripped over is how do you prevent predation? Hmm. People are going to be inclined to take shortcuts and to prey on one another. Now, I think most people don't want to do that. I don't, I don't think we, we, we didn't, we neither evolved nor are our souls composed Built. fundamentally mm-hmm. on the basis of plunder and predation. But but obviously, if I can go this shorter route and yeah. it just involves cheating you, well, I, I, there's a reason why I might want to do that because mm. maybe I'm feeling a little lazier. Maybe I, you know, I, I have my reasons. And then the question is just like, well, what keeps up? What, what keeps people from doing that? And the simple answer is, well, we just need people on high to beat us with sticks if we do the wrong thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. And sure. The other thing, though, and I think this is the market answer is, well, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So it's not good for business. It's not. Yeah. And, um, and generally speaking, if nobody's there to bail you out and, you're, and you have to earn your customers the old-fashioned way by, walk, by them walking themselves in the door with their own two feet, mm. you, you screw people over, they're not coming back. And so I do think competition I think morality and competition are better regulatory forces than like expecting the best of us to make it through the gauntlet of the political process Mm. and end up in this position of sort of unitary power where I run the Fed and I make sure banks don't do bad stuff. Um, And that's to me where I fall more in this classical liberal libertarian kind of a bent and other people of goodwill who see the same problems and may even describe the problems in the world in very similar ways might say, well, no, we need a night watchman at the door yeah, and we need to find the best person we can. And no, they're not going to be a perfect person, but we need that. We aren't, you know, you're, what you're describing is too chaotic, too anarchic for, for, for most people. Do, and, you, do you think that the, the, those levels levers of morality and competition are happening today at the same level that they once did? In other words, is one trending up or down? I feel like you make an argument on either scenario, right? You've got, you could say, well, morality is such a relative thing anymore. And there's people who believe a variety of things about the state of the world and what reality is, et cetera. So that may be trending down or or differently. You could also say we're also in a world that has an economy that's made up of big Coopetition and frenemies and partnerships and a variety of things were in the past. It used to be like if you were a company doing ABC thing, you know, there was a there's a there was maybe one Pepsi to every Coke. But now we've got like dozens of quasi-Pepsis, right? And like everybody seems to kind of can coexist. So 
you can make a case that both of those levers are kind of evolving or changing, but is there one that's more pronounced in your, like, what's the game change the most in morality or competition? If you're going to peg it. Oh man, that's a really complicated question. <laughs> um, I think I'm very worried about the, about the morality side mm. and I'm worried. It, and, and there's a feedback loop here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, at one level, you know, I, I, I'm Catholic. I'm not a great practicing Catholic, but I believe in my faith and I believe in one of the things I like about Catholicism is it's like the original Christian faith. That's it's like, right. It's the, it's the, the, it's the, the OG. OG. <laughs> the OG. Like, well, if you're going to be, if you're going to be Christian, why not just go with the original? Yeah. I had, um, I, I had a girl one time, a girl, I should say young lady uh, at my, one of my corporate jobs. She was very young though. And we were talking at some point, religion came up. And, you know, she said, well, I'm Christian. I said, oh, yeah, me too. She's like, and and uh, she's like, I'm Presbyterian or whatever. I'm like, oh, I'm a Catholic. She's like, no, no, but I meant Christian. I was like, yeah, you know, like the original Christians. And it really just kind of <laughs> stopped her because I don't think she'd ever heard it framed in that particular way. And I think we forget as Catholics sometimes to say that. And it's sometimes it's tough to say it without sounding a little triumphalistic in the process. <laughs> but it nevertheless is a historical fact. It's, it is one of these things where it's deeply ingrained culturally. Mm. For me, and I think for a lot of people, but like I'm Italian, I, my whole family is from South Philadelphia, 100% Italian, all Catholic. You know, the occasional non-Catholic is more likely to be Jewish than to be like Protestant in our family. Um, so I was raised in that. I went to 12 years of Catholic school. So the the way Protestants talk about Catholics, I didn't even encounter until college. Really? when I went to Penn state, you wow. know, it's because I just was in my little enclave of my sure. Catholic high school. And, you know, probably 95% of the students were Catholic. Um, so, and, and then you, I didn't even realize that, Oh, actually Catholics aren't, aren't, aren't a minority in America and are actually kind of have been historically discriminated against. Like it was actually a liability for JFK that he was yeah, Catholic it was. as a presidential candidate. I think, isn't Joe Biden the only other Catholic Correct. president? We've only had two. So um, to be a little triumphalist and maybe listeners are really upset about this and fine, but um, I think aren't all the conservative Supreme Court justices Catholic? Kavanaugh, Barrett. I don't know. Alito, I think is Catholic as well. Yeah. Yeah. Is Roberts? I don't, I don't know. Maybe I could look that up. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because a friend of mine uh, said that, um, that the sort of the Catholic tradition he is. is so, so Clarence Thomas, by the way, is also Catholic. Yep. So every, that's They're bizarre all, yeah, actually. Yeah. Clarence Thomas, Catholic, Samuel Alito, Catholic. But by the way, Sonia Sotomayor is also Catholic. Right. So <laughs> we've got more Catholics than anybody, but they're not all saying the same thing. No. Well, and I think um, a friend of mine said that the Catholic tradition is the deepest intellectual tradition from a Christendom perspective in America or anywhere else for that matter. But as far as like, where are you going to find, you know, the people that are really going deep into scholarship, not just theological, but legal and philosophical it's team Aquinas. Yeah. And I'd never thought about that. Cause again, it's like, it was almost like, well, I'm swimming in this water. I don't know any better. Mm. Um, but I think, um, I don't even remember what you were talking about. You're concerned <laughs> about morality. Well, I mean, I think we have, I know that there is a decline in not just attachment to organized religion, but 
um, to actual belief in God, that sort of the Zoomer generation is markedly declined in their um, polling as far mm. as saying, do they believe in God or not? Not, not like, cause you know, it's been trending like, Oh, well I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious or I'm Christian, but I don't associate with the church or whatever. But we're now getting to a substantial change of no, I'm agnostic or atheist. I don't believe in God. And I'm not going to say that you can't be moral if you don't believe in God. I, I know that to be true that you can. Um, Interestingly, the Catholic position on that would be that you, you, you're sort of imbued with a natural tendency, given the fact that we're in the image and likeness of God, to be, to want the moral, the good, the beautiful, the perfect. It's part of who we are. So even if we don't ascribe to something or, or espouse to a particular view, it's in there somewhere, right? So yeah. it's baked they, into the cake. It's baked into the cake. The, the irony is it would be the Catholics and maybe other Christian uh, traditions as well, but it would certainly be the Catholics who would say, just because you don't believe does not make you immoral. That's the great irony, is they would be the first ones to say that. That's a really, I don't know, I've ever heard anyone point that out. That's a really powerful thing. Another reason thing. to be Catholic, John. See, I'm trying to give you like all the, all the good reasons. I'll tell you, one of the things that's actually drawn me back towards thinking about these things mm. more richly is the number, there has been something that I can only say is providential um, in, in that, people of, uh, of like-minded faith have started to be, be part of my life in new ways mm. over the past several years. It really started with Arthur Brooks with the movie. He's a very devout, you know, very devout, especially from a practicing perspective. I think he goes to mass every, every day. Oh, so he's Catholic too. Yeah. Oh, I and, and he's, he made it like a, he made it like a thing. Like I'm going to make you a better Catholic over the course of this collaboration. Um, and then, you know, our mutual friend, Sean sure. and, and a good percentage of our team actually are, are Catholic um, now at Emerging Order Foundation, which has just been an accident. But I, I don't see these kind of things as accidents. These are, there's other stuff going on. So I look out into the world and what I see is I see a decline in attachment to religion, but not a decline in an attachment to religiosity. Mm. What I see is a kind of, a, a kind of, yearning for meaning and sure. for, uh, and for transcendental purpose and that it's being redirected or being filled with these really, uh, in my view, unfortunate and often fairly destructive alternatives like politics and mm. um, identity politics in particular. Uh, to some extent, I think the, the environmentalism can take this form if it's taken to the extreme and there's nothing wrong with being in, in favor of the environment, but when it starts to be like, I like the environment more than humans, it's, we get into a different category. Um, and I think that that, I think, uh, but in the political realm in particular, I, I think that that's one of the things playing out right now. I think that our fracturing of our society is partly grappling with this fading Faith. Oh, well, there are, there are, uh, I forget exactly who it was who said it, but it was like the religion of the U.S. was Christianity, then it was sports, and then now it's politics or something like that, oh. right? So, yeah, and, that and sounds that is, about right. That is true. And I think, you know, maybe, maybe somewhere behind that in fourth place is like this emerging um, kind of wellness and mindfulness uh, kind of set that it seems to be pervasive. I read a McKinsey report probably two weeks ago that pegged wellness at $1.5 trillion in the U.S. Wow. Well, you know what? It's funny because 
um, Michael Pollan came out with a book not too long ago about, I, I actually forget the title, but it, it involved like exploring things like psilocybin and, yeah. and, and plant based. That's another big movement there. Yeah, stuff. Sure. And, uh, um, alternative therapies. Yeah. Alternative therapies, drugs, whatever you want to call it. And I have certainly seen that that among like highly intellectual people has like been on the rise. And, and, and the things people describe experiencing are much like, yeah, they're, they're cool. transcendental experiences. Correct. I feel like a connection, a oneness, a unity, a wholeness with the universe. My heart is opened. All these things that these, um, experiences apparently, um, unlock for people or generate or however you want to say it, um, that's happening. So that's another thing going on. So, I actually think that some of that stuff is allowing people to peek behind a veil of reality as it truly is. I think that it's done in a way that kind of, um, it's like the Disney fast pass, you know what I mean? <laughs> Which you think is like, it's a good thing on some objective level. I get to ride the ride first, but what you miss is the narrative unfolding as you're waiting in line, right? Because the, the way that Disney is, is designed, you've got this like great story as you're waiting for the Jungle Cruise, you're waiting for Space Mountain, and all, you, you skip over all of that too. So I actually believe that when people, you know, do these kind of um, psychoactive chemicals, that some portion of that experience, it may be a minority, but is them actually seeing something beyond the veil, which is always present, but that we don't perceive. But the net of it, in the absence of the work, the discernment, the spiritual growth, the communal coming together, if you skip over all of that, the ways that people normally achieve that level of sort of transcendence or understanding of the divine, it actually short, short changes you. So you don't end up being as well built or formed for, for that experience to begin with. And it ends up being this sort of like sort of shocking, you know, it's kind of where maybe bad trips come from or things like, I, it's just too much. I just can't process it. Like it's just way too much stuff. But I think that there might actually be some little like peak that you're able to see and like, oh crap, this stuff is really like here. It reminds me when my, when my dad was passing, I've told this story before, but I don't think I've shared it with you. When my dad was passing away, he died of lung cancer in 2015. And two weeks before he passed, he called my wife and I into, into a room and, and said, hey, because we were taking care of him. He was passing away. He, and he was convalescing for like 10 months and then he passed. But he called us in the room and he said to us, sat us right down, probably two weeks before he died. And he says, I just want you to know that over the next couple of weeks, it's, things are going to get strange. Like literally he said that. Hmm. Things are going to get a little strange. And I just want you to remember, I'll never forget this. I just want you to remember that it's still me. It's still me here. And it was a way to kind of warn us about something that was maybe beginning to happen. And from that point on to the moment he died, I'd be in a conversation with him like I am with you right now. And all of a sudden he'd like look up at the corner of the room like he just saw something fly by. Or he would like we'd be in the middle of a conversation and his eyes would just kind of trail off and he'd look to the side and, and be like kind of noticing something that wasn't there. And honestly, I really believe that the, war the warning he gave us, plus the fact that he passed a couple weeks later, were him saying in a way that he was starting to see with spiritual eyes beyond the physical eyes at stuff that is probably always there that we just don't notice. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I put those things together and I have a sense that some of these things give us a chance to tap into that. But again, we're skipping over the lifetime of work that helps you actually process this when you get there. Yeah, it's, it's really difficult to grapple with 
some of this because I, I also, I do believe there's a whole infinite number of, of reality planes happening that we aren't really equipped to perceive and that, um, I don't doubt that there's things going on that are being unlocked by, uh, you know, these things that God gave us, these plants and these, sure. <laughs> this stimulation of our, of our mind, of our, of our sensory system, of all of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, and is it, is it a problem to shortchange that to like take the steroids instead of hit the gym hard for, for, for months, you know, maybe for some people it's not, maybe they, they're ready and it's, it's, they're, you know, one of the things Arthur said to me was, cause we were talking about how both of us, I think, suffer from this being kind of intellectually oriented that we don't feel Mm. God mm. very much. Mm. Like I, I, I'm not a, I'm actually like, I'm Italian. I'm a blubbery feeling guy. Like I cry, right. I cry at the drop of a hat. So it's not a lack of feeling or empathy, but it is a tendency to want to talk about these things in this kind of way, you know, mm. like a dialectical sure. philosophical way. And, um, and meanwhile, my wife can literally start to meditate and get into like a Kundalini space and like commune with God. And she comes back and she's like, Oh, I could hear the voice of God. And I'm like, wow. I don't know if I'll ever experience that. And Arthur said, well, didn't you know that dad gets you to church and mom gets you to heaven? This is the thing that <laughs> this it's is true. This is the lot we've been given. And the stats are there. I don't know if you've looked at this. I know you're, you're working on a project now called dad saves America. I don't know if you've looked at some of those, those, uh, stats, but it is true that the father practicing the faith has some ridiculously outsized impact on whether or not the kids actually grow up practicing, even if the mom is super devout. Yeah, it's I I have been made aware of this. In fact, we're actually un- putting finishing touches on a video that's going to come out probably next week at uh, Dad Saves America, our YouTube channel. And I actually talk about this, that just, you know, it's part of a bigger conversation, but it is a conversation about um, sort of this macro picture that we have this rise of what I, what I would call sort of nihilism, this like this yearning, this emptiness. Um, and it kind of marries with a belief or a desire that we can achieve utopia here on yeah. earth, either through political action or through some other kind of communion with something. And it just gives rise to this, this energy that is, you know, it's taking to the streets. I mean, we look right now, like Sri Lanka just fell. I saw that. And, you know, and that's, and the prime minister of Japan, Japan was just assassinated, former prime minister. And then the other prime minister of the United Kingdom stepped down. And I mean, we're, we're definitely in like high turmoil times. And it's, and it's also made, I think it, it, it complicates things too when, this yearning or this nihilism or whatever you call it and us trying to sort of reconstruct things in the absence of religion, it also is really unsatisfying too because at the end of it, whether you pass the policy or you reverse the trend or you introduce the new initiative or whatever it is, you find that as an end in itself, it is fundamentally unsatisfying. St. Thomas Aquinas, you mentioned, I'm sorry, not, not St. Thomas Aquinas, you mentioned St. Thomas Aquinas earlier, but St. Augustine is an example, or Augustine, depending on where you're from. But, um, you know, famously, his line is, you know, our hearts are, are restless, and they're restless until they rest in you, meaning that the final end, the ultimate end of all things is the source of all things, right, which is God. 
And anything, if we lose that for a second, that's now detached. That's not an option. And we try to replace that with something of the world. Even achieving it doesn't give us the rest, satisfaction, confidence, comfort, whatever it is we're looking for, that we thought it would. So ultimately, it's unsatisfying, right? So you get to that promised land and you're like, what the hell? Not what I thought. And so it's like, you know what I mean? Well, it's funny because I didn't even answer your question last, but it ties into what you just said and to what, what is our big project right now, Dad Saves America. And that is, you know, you'd mentioned the, the, the research showing how dad really is the definitive player in a family for whether or not the kids are going to be practicers, practitioners of their faith. And I think this has been studied multiple times. It has. And it is really robust. It's as robust as the fact that the biological father being in the home is a highly determinant variable in whether or not your kids, especially your boys, are going to turn out okay. And um, so dad matters in a really important way. And, you know, talking about that restlessness and that, where do you find home? Where do you find rest? The closest I've come so far is when my son was born. Mm. And so I, you know, I, I was working at this, at this point for almost a decade in New York city in entertainment. And, you know, my wife, Lisa and I, we got married and, you know, we were having a baby and, and I was unprepared for the extent to which his birth would rewire my, mm. my brain, my priorities, my, like my fundamental nature changed and it changed in ways that like people didn't really prepare me for. Nobody did. Um, the most surprising part of it was, so he was born in 2005. Um, I had never been like a public speaker. I, I, I wasn't especially entrepreneurial. I was, Intrapreneurial. Yeah. You know, I worked at Viacom. I was working at, uh, at you the were time. You were at Nickelodeon. You were at Spike. Yeah. You were at a yeah. bunch of different places. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was, I sort of climbed up through the TV promos and brand corporate ladder at Viacom. And I mean, I wanted to be Steven Spielberg. So I had like lots of ambition. I was constantly judging myself against an incredibly impossible bar about, mm. oh, well, sure. Now I'm one of the two creative directors at the network but my buddy just got a three picture deal. So I suck and I'm nowhere near my goals and he's doing great or whatever. You know, I was mostly comparing myself to my own goals rather than other people, other people. Like I've never been especially oriented around comparison to other people. I'm, I mostly feel good for other people's success. I think that's the only healthy way to be. But, um, but then my son was born and like for six months, that career that I invested my entire like identity into like lost all its flavor. Absolutely. It was like eating like rich Godiva chocolate and then going back to that iced tea and it tasting like water. It's like, where's the tea flavor? It's like, well, your taste buds like can't process it. They're like shocked by the chocolate. And that's what it was like. Wow. And then thereafter I was a different person. Mm. Was it like a thunderclap all at once, like the day he was born, or was it something that faded into clarity, like with the months? It was pretty thunderclap. Yeah. It was, it was like he came out and the world was different. And it was just an absolute miracle. And nothing could be more important than this. And therefore, everything else doesn't matter that much. And there's a couple of ways you can take that feeling. The way I took it was, oh, 
what do I have to lose then Hmm. if I want to go for whatever that next opportunity is, which in my case was like starting a company and leaving like this ladder I'd climbed behind to move to Austin, Texas, where I didn't know anybody and start this bizarre company that would make videos and films about like high flying economic, philosophical, moral concepts, which on paper looks completely idiotic. It's like nobody's going to want that. Although if you had a backdrop for what would lead you to that, like having years and years of like programming for kids probably does get you to the point where it's like, I need to have some transcendent things to discuss sooner rather than later. (laughs) It's true. Well, and it's like, you know, and it was the, you know, he's, he's born in 2005. The, the, we don't start our company until 2011. Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of things that happen, including the global financial crisis that really like awakens my interest in economics. But, um, you know, this focus on dad, this focus on being a dad and on embracing that, the heroic nature of that. Yeah. And the, um, the richness that comes from, from that identity and that experience and that work that you get to do and that role you get to play. Uh, that's what our YouTube channel, dad saves America is all about. It's like, okay, this is, if you're a man and you're going, I I think if you're a man, this is going to be the most important thing you get to do. I hope every man gets to do this. Obviously that's not going to be the case for everybody for a whole host of reasons, but, um, but not everybody gets to do all the greatest stuff. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's true. Well, and even for those who are not maybe biological parents or fathers, there are ways to be a father in many other ways. I mean, 100%. And it's like, we've um, participated in, um, you know, the, uh, big brothers, big sisters and stuff like that. And, and, um, and there's a great organization in Texas upbring. It's a foster care. So there's a lot of things you don't need to, you know, you don't need to be a biological father to tap into this, dad brain, this yeah. capability you have as a man to, to be a father figure. But I think it's, it's one of the most essential things that is in decline in the United States in particular. Mm. Um, and I don't think, I don't think culturally we've had the, the depth of, of energy put into, um, exploring what it means to have healthy, positive masculinity in the same way that, you know, there was a women's liberation movement and, and I'm, I'm just cribbing, um, Warren Farrell here, but there very much was a whole, a whole ecosystem, a whole multiple waves of philosophical exploration of what it means to be a woman and to be a feminist. And, um, some of that unfortunately was, and some of it out of necessity was against the backdrop of being in opposition to men, though not all of it is. And I think, I don't think men have grappled with that mm. in the same way, at least in the United States. Like I, there, there isn't a, you know, when I was at Spike, we did this, I was responsible for this um, ad campaign called True Dads, which mm. was actually kind of funny because it's like years and years. I mean, this is like over, over 10 years ago. And so I'm kind of coming back to where I started in some ways. Of course, yeah. But it's God's great ironic twist. It is. It's like you kind of fold back on yourself and realize there's all this other detail. Well, and he's probably laying the groundwork too. It really feels like that. 
I can really feel that hand in, in the work we're doing mm. in a, in a real way. And, um, and at the time, like I did this like 60 second, like spot that was sort of like a manifesto kind of piece. And it was like, you know, you know, here's to you, super mom, you do it all the work, the kids, everything. But what about you, dad? Where's your super title? There is no, I mean, and yes, yeah, sir, technically there is super dad, but there isn't super dad culturally sure. the way there is super. Yeah, mom. there isn't. Yeah. And, and I was experiencing that because, you know, even in the sort of, I want to say like the, the like masculine feminine dynamics, like I'm not like the most masculine man ever. Like I'm an artist and right. I'm like very feeling. And my wife is actually in a lot of ways more, I've learned assertiveness from my wife. She's in many ways more assertive than me. So, you know, what I'm talking about has nothing to do with like sort of stereotypical gender norms. It's, but that's kind of the point is like, we haven't had a, as much of an opportunity to like play this stuff out without it being sort of in like reactionary. And that's one of the things I'm trying to do is explore this idea of what does it mean to be and raise a man? Now I do have a question of why you think that hasn't happened yet. So like hold that in the back of your mind. I want to, I agree a hundred percent that we haven't had in the dominant culture, this kind of move to better understand either masculinity or fatherhood. You do see both in uh, religious contexts, you know, magisterial documents, theological writings, things like that. But those things are generally not accessible to the popular culture, the dominant culture. So we really haven't seen that. We have seen that in the case of women, mm -hmm. both femininity, you know, motherhood to some extent, now increasingly less, I think, in my opinion. But Oh, I agree. I agree. I think motherhood is almost given almost as much short shrift as masculinity. Yeah, now. And that's a that's a newer thing. So I, I definitely think that that is the case, and we don't see that in the sort of, you know, dominant culture. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that, or that came to be, I guess? Was it just because, hey, you know, guys are already in charge of everything. We don't need to, we don't need to have that special addition for them or that special movement or that initiative. Like, what's behind that? Because, like, I would say, well, at the very least, no matter what you believe, we acknowledge that there are these, you know, different biological sexes, even people who don't agree with, you know, have all kinds of ideas about gender theory, et cetera, still most of them can see that there are biological differences in people. Some on the fringes don't even do that. But um, so you could at least say, hey, we should probably have some special way to think about this, but it doesn't really exist. I, I can't claim to have a, a robust explanation for this. Yeah. I think that, I think some, I think there's, you know, every virtue taken to its extreme becomes a vice and, and, and within even the most extreme worldviews is often at least a kernel of truth. For sure. And so I think that the extent to which I'll just say like American slash Western society, I'll just narrow it to that. The extent to which our historical tradition has been patriarchal and in a way that is in fact oppressive, I think there's certainly in there's certain that there that is certainly true in some measure along some dimensions you know women only got the right to vote relatively recently um as an example and some of it's technological the emergence of the birth control pill was like a sociological technological 
like explosive event that suddenly you have this ability to control your your reproduction in a way that wasn't possible before and that changes the game in terms of all of these relationships and i think that those change points um play a big role in the way like the our modern era and the sort of political philosophical cultural conversation plays out um you know i I, I am sympathetic to people who say like, you know, whether it's Jordan Peterson or, or Warren Farrell or others, but those two really come to mind. You say, look, this is a really weirdly one-sided way to look at the world that is through a, like a kind of half rose colored glasses, which is to say like, oh, it's always been great to be a man and terrible to be a woman. And that's not true. Like mm-hmm. being a man generally meant doing horrible brutal jobs that often involved your early death. And there's nothing especially great or patriarchal about that. And yes, women have the miracle and the power to give birth. And with it comes the necessity to carry the baby and to do all the things that go along with that, which they can do and we cannot and that is disproportionate that there's different roles going on there. And some of those can be quite oppressive and feeling. And I get all that. It's all complicated, but, um, you know, I do think that I think maybe one way to think about what's happened is I'm thinking of I'm thinking about this in real time right now. So pardon me if I sort of trip a little, but if you think about what's happened at the like at the like technological scale almost we have gone only recently from an era of horsepower is measured in horses right to horsepower as this anachronism for measuring uh electric turbine and 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 car engines and right. it, power it, output and it yeah. goes into the thousands of horsepower and like and so, and so similarly, you know, just the human form, like men are physically stronger. Mm-hmm. There were, that gave rise to men being the warriors, men doing certain kinds of things, which put men, I think perhaps almost technologically in positions of power, literally, literally power, physical power. And now that capability has been replaced by machines. And so in a very real sense, the balance of power shifted with that. Mm. And it became a question of, well, now we're in an era where 70 plus percent of employment in the United States, at least, is service sector jobs. Jobs that involve the skill largely of how do you interact interpersonally with other people? Like how much you can carry is irrelevant almost. Uh, and even if you do have a job that involves carrying, you probably have a machine to help you. Correct. So th- that's also probably part of this. It's it's like we had a sort of delayed cultural conversation looking back on the kind of manpower mm. era, literally manpower. And now as we and now we've moved in this era where there's fewer men in the workforce than women now today. Um, in almost every field, women outperform men. Uh, it's the, the the college graduation and attendance rate has flipped now. It's 60, 40 female male, female, and, male. And, and heading further in that direction. 
And I think that's part of this. That's part of that thing that's happening. And so, you know, women had this blossoming set of opportunities because now it was like, oh, I can be the titan of industry mm. because it's not a manpower industry anymore. Right. It's, it's a human power industry. It's a, it's a cognitive power, yeah. social I, power industry. And the re, so the rebalancing has mostly gone in the direction of power to more power to women in that. In the, and I don't mean that in political sense. I mean that in yeah, a no, broader I sense. I totally get it. And I think the conversation hasn't rebalanced to look at this in the full, the full picture. The I can full, totally see Looking that. at the whole thing. I think that's exactly the way to look at it. It's almost like a, it's like a correction. Now, some people would say that there's been an overcorrection, meaning that um, if you're maybe this is some part of the background of Dad Saves America, I don't know, but that in the in the context of this overcorrection, we've kind of jettisoned guys like they're gone from the equation. We're increasingly in a dominant culture where dad isn't necessarily around anyway. And we've got all these machines and technology and all these other things that facilitate doing things easily. So the dad or the man, you know, can be relegated to the backseat in a, in a pretty significant way. Yeah. I, I think that's unquestionably the case, right? So, uh, the United States leads planet earth in fatherlessness Yep, and to a degree that is shocking when you look at it. So you might think, well, this is like a, just a global phenomenon, but it's actually not. So, I think it's the numbers are right around 35% fatherlessness in the United States aggregate across all races. Um, and it's like 9% globally. So we're more than three X worse yeah, at this multiples. Yeah. And, um, and that has to have a net effect. Well, and it's like, we, you know, most of the people that conduct sociological social science are left of center mm. and pretty much without an exception, everyone that's, looked at the impact of father in the home has had to re has had to admit that their research says dad really needs to be there if you want the optimal outcomes. Mm. And one of the most interesting things I've, I've come across is that um, there's been some studies around, and this is always going to be difficult to know. How do you study empathy? But there's been studies about empathy as adults and the single biggest determinant <coughs> in whether or not, um, someone t was high in empathy, concern for others, feeling for others was whether dad was around. Wow. Now it's like, well, wait, but isn't mom the caring, nurturing one on average? Obviously it's not true in every case, but on average, mom's going to be more caring, nurturing, empathetic. Well, it's not entirely understood why this happens, but one way to think about it is, well, what does it mean to be empathetic? Hmm. Well, it doesn't mean to be to have empathy poured on upon you because experiencing someone else empathizing with you is the experience of being the center of attention. So if mom is empathizing with you all the time and, Oh honey, I'm sorry that happened and whatnot. And let me hug you and let me, you know, let me make you the center of my world. Um, you're just the center of attention. Sure. It's shining <laughs> the light on you. Yeah. Not necessarily modeling something for you potentially. Yeah. When dad comes home and, and you attempt the same sob story about why your teacher's wrong about this or that. And you're like, well, what did you do? Like, well, hold on, hold the phone, play this out for me again. Right. Okay. So why did he poke you in the eye? Did you do something to him? Did you cause like that, that, that nature? Mm. And it's all like implicit. It's not like we do this intentionally. 
but that is now requiring the kid to think about other people, which is what empathy is about. It's, it's not about like me. It's about right. me thinking about others. That's one possible reason by that for that. And sure. I think, and it's like, nobody knows, <laughs> nobody knows this. Nobody's talking about this. It's just like, Oh, to- masculinity is toxic and uh, boys are bad. And as the father of a son, um, I think that's ridiculous. I think to discount people on the basis of their gender is an anachronism and it's, it's inhumane and there actually is a crisis with boys in particular. We're not just focused on dads with boys. Dad Saves America is about dad's role in the family and, and how to think about the world. It's not just like, all right, what, what are you going to do this weekend? Like we're ta- tackling heavy subjects and trying to arm our viewers, which is we're early days in this brand and this channel. We're trying to arm people with ways of thinking about their role um, as a father, as a parent, um, the role of their kids and how to sort of arm them with, 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 with the tools to succeed. Cause I feel like that's our job. Our job as a parent is to set your kids up to survive after you're gone, after you're dead. That's your, it is your genetic imperative. It's your moral imperative. Can I turn my son to the extent I have any control over this? And I have some into a good man so that when I, Plots. <laughs> He's out there making the world a better place, rinsing and repeating that, Absolutely. that work. I'm sure it's you got a lot of people that are on the sidelines cheering on this initiative and many involved, I'm sure, in making it. But it's also hard for me to imagine you coming out with an initiative like this, given that positioning in the world we are today, and especially on the social platforms that you're distributing it at, and not getting some blowback, some pushback, some flack. I don't think we've reached the mass yet. And in fact, I know we haven't to invite blowback. I will say this. Um, I, I, I welcome that. And also I'm being pretty careful to, to ultimately fundamentally be positive because a, it, it actually is like important work that I have to do because I can totally be a polemicist. And mm-hmm. just like rail against all the things I think are broken <laughs> and all the crooked cronies trying to lie to you on a daily basis. And, right. I, and there's a little bit of that even in tensionally with what, what I'm doing with Dad Saves America, because I do believe that we face what I call a fear industrial complex. Mm. There is built in incentives that are that are both market and political to push our dopamine buttons with fear and anxiety. 100%. I, our kids, you know, again, I have a seven, 17 year old son. He's a zoomer. He's a Gen Z kid. He doesn't have any of the anxiety problems that a lot of his peers do, but a lot of his peers have anxiety problems. No question. And we know that this is the In case. crisis proportions. I mean, the epidemic of, of, uh, anxiety, depression, youth suicide going all the way down to like eight, eight, nine, ten 10 year olds is extreme. This is something that we have to figure out how to confront. I think dad's absence and his and the need for a dad renewal are essential, if not the biggest single factor in being able to right the ship on this front for our kids and for our future. And so um, I'm not going to I'm not going to soft pedal that. And at the same time, I don't think you have to be a, a bombastic screamer 
that's calling other people names to do that. Now, I, sometimes I'm guilty as charged, especially on my Facebook page, but mostly just at politicians. I don't like to, I don't like to do anything negative towards individual people, even if I think they're like completely crazy and so, maybe even personally think they're evil. I still think that God calls upon us to see the best in, in other people, even when we don't understand how they're getting to where they're at. And even if we think they maybe have malice and maybe are acting in bad faith, I still think we only win in the biggest possible sense in our, whatever our mission might be, if we hold ourselves to the highest possible standard. And I'm trying to do that and with the work. And seek to understand. That was a very Christian principle right there. You know, even, even with people that might behave otherwise and not give you a lot of reasons to want to understand them. Nevertheless, there is a, you know, some imperative there to say like, hey, let me try to figure out why exactly this would, I mean, that's the pr principle behind rehabilitation of people who go to jail. It's like, I know you did something wrong. We acknowledge you did it. You acknowledge you did it. You're going to repay your debt to society and we're going to try to help rehabilitate you so that you can be a, you know, a functioning member of this thing we called, uh, we call society, right? We call community. Well, and, uh, you know, just as an example of that, um, we had a guest on the show who, the, the episode's not out yet, Anton Lucky, who started the Bloods Gang in Dallas. Mm. And at an early age, and he did it um, out of a kind of survival that he then turned out to be pretty good at. And so he succeeded in building out this essentially criminal enterprise, ultimately went to jail, found Christ and, um, you know, and found people that were delivering that news to him. And he came out and now he's working with um, young people like his former self and intervening in ways that gets them out of that cycle. It's, his organization is called urban specialists and it's, you got to check it out. It's yeah, really incredible. Sure and, um, and I, to me, so I think about a couple of core pillars that I think dads are in a position to, um, to work on with their kids and you need to work on it with yourself and with yourself. And I, I don't have all the answers. Um, I, I, this is like my, my like groping for the, for, for the, for stuff that might be useful for somebody. It's useful for me. Maybe it's useful for other people. Um, you know, one of them really is mental health and mindset. So do, and I think about that in terms of two sort of levers. Do you experience an internal locus of control or agency? Do I, do you believe, do you experience that your choices matter? Or do you believe you're a victim of circumstance, a victim of the world that, it's the external world that has control over you. And mm. there's not much you can do about that. Mm. This is basically the single biggest source of whether or not people are happy. Social scientifically. If people uh, report that they feel they have a, a measure of control in their life, they're, they're happy. Happy mm. people ha feel that way. Unhappy people feel that they're a victim of circumstance, that their choices don't seem to make a difference. And the world's all just luck. And, um, and the second one is, do you have a growth mindset? Do you believe that, that, that improvement is possible for you as an individual, for society, for, for, but, but especially for you as an individual? Like, possible or good or both? Possible. I think um, when we try something new that we don't know whether or not we'll succeed in, 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 in this enterprise, those two things are at work. So I'm having to, I'm having to make a choice, whether it's start a business or try a class in an area that you're not sure you'll do, do well at. Um, you are 
engaging your agency, you're, you're making choices, you're, you're putting that free will God gave you to use, and you're making an assumption that you could grow. You've got a shot. You've got a shot to yeah. be better. And, and those two things aren't a given, those wow. two positions. That, I mean, everybody can do that. They can experience agency and a growth mindset. That agency one, though, strikes me as something that's like a way top of the waterfall uh, kind of decision or modality or whatever you want to call it, where everything that comes after that can end up wildly different than if you chose the other path, right? In theological terms, there's, there's, um, there's a path called ontology and there's a path called phenomenology. Hmm. Ontology is the sort of bias, emphasis, understanding, et cetera, that's rooted in looking at something for its isness. Like it is this and reality flows from what it is. Phenomenology has more to do with appearances, circumstances, conditions, et cetera. So while something may appear, while something may be something, it appears, presents, manifests, or does some other in a different way. And what I found with people when I have theological conversations, which isn't often, but sometimes I do, <laughs> when I have theological conversations, I try to get to like, which one of those, you know, tributaries are you more inclined to? The one that says things are, therefore I look for, to understand them on the basis of what they are, or they appear a particular way, and therefore I look at understanding them on the basis of how they appear. It's like one of those super high thoughts. And this personal agency thing is right up there with you. It's like either you have some role to play in this great tapestry of decision-making that's going on universally and you have a role to play, or this play is going on without you and you're like in the audience and whether this thing goes to crap or it's a success, you're more of a passenger in that experience. It's not necessarily something you can, you can impart. I mean, that seems like a super like fundamental tributary. You know, you have to pick one of those paths and it, it can kind of end you up way over here or way over here, depending on where you, what you choose. I think you're exactly right. I mean, it's why these things are, um, they're so deeply ingrained in what we think of as our, uh, the positions we end up occupying in our minds and in our actions. Um, what, like the, the notion of being a victim it, it is it is a fact that people can be victims. Be, of course. They can be they can be victimized by others. And it leaves a mark. And it leaves a mark. And you can your ability to control whether or not that happens or whether or not that mark happens is limited. However, you you still ultimately have control over what you do with the circumstances you are provided with. Mm. You know, um, you know, Viktor Frankl has written about this in Man's Search for Meaning, which my son read in seventh grade, and it like completely exploded him and made him into a st total little stoic. Um, and then he read Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, and it was like, okay, this kid, he's, a reading he's, a little, he's like a little Buddha. Um, but I think the thing is, is like, if you, if you embrace your capabilities, if you say, I can make a difference here. Yes, I have been victimized, but I'm not going to allow that to define me. I am going to integrate that experience. I'm not just going to ignore it or push it deep down and hide it and put it in a box and hope it doesn't 
rear its ugly head in the middle of my marriage at the worst possible time or whatever. And they generally do. Um, but I'm going to integrate that, however. But I'm not going to make this an albatross around my neck. This is now part of who I am. And I've got a lot to offer the world. And I'm going to make those choices. Everyone can do that. There is no person that can't do that. Mm. Um, you know, maybe there are people who are literally, you know, cognitively, socially impaired to such an extent that they physically lack certain brain functions for, for, for agency. But, you know, putting that in the special case category, every kid has the ability to see themselves as having, having agency and having a role to play in their, in their, in the story of their lives that they can chart their hero's journey for themselves. Um, and with that as a guiding light, I, I look at everything and say, well, am I making that more likely for my kid or less? Mm. So a simple way to think about that in really practical terms is never do your homework for your kids. Let them get the F. Tough to do as a parent sometimes. It's tough. It's tough. You, you know, don't do their work for them. Yeah. Because it, it's sending multiple messages that you don't even fully appreciate. One of which being, I don't think you can do this yourself. Yeah. And a lot of times what's driving that is the worst thing to drive your decisions. And that's fear. Oh, if they get an F, it's going to hurt their GPA. And then they're not going to get into the AP classes. And then they're not going to go to Harvard. And it's like, well, first of all, who cares? <laughs> True. Especially nowadays. Who cares yeah. if they go to Harvard? Right. It's like, I mean, again, my friend Arthur Brooks, he's teaching at Harvard. It's not that great. I mean, he's great, but. No, like, I get it. I get it. Um, this, the, the, we, we impose all of these expectations. This is like a disease of mm. living in a wealthy society, I think. Very much so. Because you're not, because you know what you're not, you know what's interesting about the anxiety and the depression and the suicide, it is especially dominant in middle upper middle class families. And you don't see for, you don't see these rates as much in, for example, African-American homes mm. and specifically ones who are not as financially or, or you know, well off. It, adversity does teach you some lessons. You've just heard part one of this conversation between Deacon Charlie and John Popola. Be sure to listen next week for the second half of the discussion where the two dive into faith and its evolution in John's life personally, professionally, and as a father. 